podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey gang, the big game is almost here and we've teamed up with DraftKings to get us all in the game. This week, you can play fantasy football for a shot at the $1 million top prize. $1 million. You heard that right. DraftKings is giving away $6 million in token prizes with a million going to the winner. The sign-up link is in the pod description, our show notes, and we'll put it out on our social channels as well at the NC Show. So get involved and start making your picks. This contest locks on the 13th of Feb at 11.30 p.m., 18 plus only. Be gambleaware.org. Eligibility restrictions apply. See the website for details. Hello and welcome to the Nat Coombs Show. Good to have you with us, gang, as we keep on rolling towards Super Bowl 56. Iron Mike, that's in the vault. His preview for the game, including his keys to the game. Shane Vereen as well. He's been there, done it. Got the ring. Brilliant insight from him. A college day special from Ben Isaacs too. All of that in the vault. Lots of good stuff to come as well over the next few days. But today we're all about the X's and O's and the detail, the strategy. Who better? And the man has been illuminating all season long. One of the very best in the business when it comes down to demystifying the game that we love. Let's get a special Super Bowl preview from the brilliant Ollie Connolly. Ollie Connolly, great to see you, man. Super Bowl week, here we are. I think the two teams we all expected to see vying <laughs> for the Lombardi Trophy, right? I mean, I bet you predicted it. Uh, I, I think it's a fascinating matchup. Um, the Rams, of course, I mean, it's a bit more exciting to me than even what Chiefs Rams would have been only because that felt like it was so preordained before the season. Like it was kind of some kind of Madden, you know, Madden would kick out <laughs> that for you on one of those uh, preseason prediction type things people do where they simulate the season. It's like, oh yeah, of course those two teams will get there. So I, I kind of like the quirkiness. I like seeing all the media entities running around being like, we had no idea the Bengals will be here. We haven't covered them all season. <laughs> now <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> Find me a Bengals yeah. person. I like that. Well, well that's what it's, yeah, I, I was glad, I'm glad we got you on here because that, that is exactly what we're going to do on today's show break down some of these narratives we hear flying around and the keys to the game and uh, all fair and well and good. But I want to drill down into a bit more detail with with a few of those. So that's what we'll do with you today because you are so eloquent at, at explaining and uh, simplifying the X's and O's. So let's start with some, some broader brushstrokes, first of all, with regards to, I want to go to the Rams first and the offense first. So last time you were on, you were explaining the integration of Odell Beckham to to this Rams offense and how and why that was becoming uh, gradually more and more more effective. So I think that was about four weeks ago. So I mean, that was the last time we caught up with you. The playoffs that the Rams offense has been, to the most part, particularly effective, if you look at the season as a holder, and Stafford in particular as well, Beckham becoming more and more prominent. So just talk us through why you think that is. Is it just a case of that acclimatization from Beckham, a few more games for Stafford to uh, to to roll. The fact that Akers is back and uh, fumbles notwithstanding has added a different dimension to, to the offense. Talk us through what you've made of the Rams offense in the postseason so far. I still think there's something about it that's a little bit, it's not fully clicking the way you would expect if, when you just look at all the individual pieces and you say, how would we kind of jigsaw this thing together? I'm not sure it's fully firing on all cylinders, but there's certainly been great strides from that kind of mid-season slump where it looked like the whole the whole thing could be falling down a little bit. 
Um, Odell Beckham in particular has been interesting in so much as, like you mentioned when I came on last time, we were talking about how they've paired him and Cooper Cup together, whereas previously Robert Woods and Cooper Cup, they'd separate them in kind of their empty package, which is one of their, their go-to, particularly in second and third down situations. What's interesting with him too is how they've redefined in certain ways their run game. So much still comes off the run and the play action of what McVeigh wants to do. And previously you would have Robert Woods and Cooper Cup who are basically tight ends playing as wide receivers. And they would use them in the way you would in old school offenses, the way the tight end would be drawn up. They just go, go okay, we'll sub in Cooper Cup or Robert Woods for that position. With Odell Beckham, it's, it's a lot more deception. It's a lot more of not having him at the point of attack blocking. That's where Cup and Woods was so Immense is they would just be immediately up to the second level or they could seal off someone at the first level like a tight end would and you could pull a move lineman around them. With Odell Beckham, it's more, well, let's get him flowing away from the run action. We'll get him running through the backfield. We'll get eyes going after Odell Beckham and then we send the run flying the other way. And so you kind of have the defense going, oh my God, that's Odell Beckham. Oh no, they're booting out to, to send Odell into the flat. And mm-hmm. it's like, no, we're running a different run scheme these days. The the motion is away from the run play, where previously the motion was f- f- you know, within the run play and it may come out and then it would be a pass play. So they've done quite interesting stuff with Odell. I think they've done a really interesting job just leveraging his celebrity, for lack of a better expression. People know who Ed- Odell Beckham is. On defenses, mm. they're like, oh no, we cannot leave him one-on-one. Mm. Um, and they've done a really smart job of leveraging that in the run game and pass game. Are you surprised at how... Beckham has taken to this role, and and, and like, it's something as well that you, I guess, alluded to in your definition of 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 how Cup and Woods have been used in looking back, sort of ten years, uh, and, and an unreconstructed tight end role. But the the requirement that this Rams offense has on receivers doing some heavy lifting and the dirty work and blocking and getting stuck in, have, have you noticed that has Beckham been asked to do a lot of that? And and, and I guess more more broadly than that, it generally the role he's been asked to play where he isn't the superstar in, in, in this offense, how he's adapted to that as a player. Yeah, I think he's been excellent. I mean, less so do they use him at the point of attack as a blocker. I mean, when he does, he's always been willing. He will always get into a scrap. There is no like kind of <laughs> being scared of it because of a contract or any nonsense like that. Like he is up for throwing his helmet through someone's chest. He just isn't that good at it necessarily. Uh, <laughs> right, but okay. sometimes, you know, particularly if it's a primitive room, which is where you would see him come inside mostly, it's just kind of being in the way is enough. As long as you get those two beats so, so the, the running back can go outside you, that's kind of just about enough. They don't really ask him to like seal and then have the whole run game orbit around him the way mm. they would do Cooper Cup or Robert Woods. The other thing that's interesting is so much of their system is predicated on getting Cooper Cup free. Cooper Cup is obviously a phenom. The only way you ever slow him down is by jamming him to the line of scrimmage. That's where he struggles. And that's where everyone in the league wants to be, right? Press man coverage. That's from press man coverage. So the, the Rams do an unbelievable job of hiding him wherever possible by yeah. stacking him in two little receiver stacks rather than a full bunch, just trying to find little ways to make it so he can get off the line of scrimmage free. And if he's off free, it's game over. Mm. And Odell Beckham has been consistently the guy at the head of the stack. And they just pair the two of them together. And it's such a nightmare to figure out how are those routes going to disperse. Again, you get this whole fact of that is Odell Beckham. We cannot let that guy get downfield. And so everyone naturally backs up and backs up. And so the intermediate part of the field is so wide open for Cooper Cup to do what he does best. It's fascinating how uh, they've looked to continually keep Cup uh, open and therefore able to to cause this kind of damage. Uh, And yet, as we see so often in the NFL, Ollie, we all know this is what they're going to try and do, but knowing it and stopping it is two altogether different things. So let's go there next. Talk us through how teams have attempted to 
limit, if not neutralize completely Cooper Cup? And have you noticed any that have had more success than others in doing so? Not really. Did he, did he break the record this year for receiving yards? I think he did, right? So he seems to have... Um... <laughs> the triple crown. I mean, yeah. no one's really had... But, but you know, any receiver that prolific yeah. and that productive, sure, you could have... You're never going to totally take them out of the game, but you're going to have stronger uh, takes than others, right? At, at that, keeping quiet. That is true. But the, the thing about him that's so remarkable is it's not Calvin Johnson. It's not Randy Moss. Right. It's not Jamar Chase running away from a cornerback. And it's like, well, what can we do? He's bigger, stronger, faster than everyone else. It's intellect it's real real fast short area quickness it's julian edelman but being asked to do it a bit further down the field mm. um so there should really be a way to try and stop that i mean the only way you can really do it is teams do these morphing they call it a cone coverage because there's three points of the triangle and depending on where he goes with his route we'll take the double team always going that way we'll take the double team so you can get all the leverage points on him yeah that stuff just really hard to do it takes you having a roster for a long time to be able to pick up all kind of the intricacies of that. Now at the NFL level, a lot of guys can do that, but he's just too good. He is just too good. And they do so many different things from the same alignment. It's not like they move him an awful lot. They run their whole offense out of him basically in four or five points. So it's not like you can say, oh, he's in this stack now. It's probably one of these seven things. So now we'll put the cone on. So it's just really difficult. The only avenue you have as a defense is saying, we all drop, we just play what they call country zone coverage. We all hit our landmarks. And then we just get our eyes and we try and find whoever has the ball. And if he has it, so he has it, you know, it is what it is. Um, there's, there's other than that, you, you, like I said before, you want to jam him. That's the only way it's to jam him at the line of scrimmage. And mm. he isn't as effective when he's pressed, but they just do such a great job of hiding him that you can't really get up on him. So how much credit should go to McVeigh? He's obviously been uh, maligned in compared to how, how, uh, Brightest story was a couple of years back. You know, stars definitely waned uh, in recent years, and O'Connell as well. Yabu, we mentioned how much of the development of Cooper Cup and the breakthrough season that he's had should be credit should be given to them, him individually, a combination of the two. Stafford's role within this as well. Would Cup have had as prolific a season if a different, lesser quarterback had been under the gun? Uh, maybe only because. The, the fact of Robert Woods going down for a couple of weeks and then them, him just getting more production naturally because the other guy has gone down until they could fully get Odell Beckham up to speed. He was always going to get some more touches. Their schedule was kind of kind in the middle of the season too. I remember they just pulverized the Texans and I think he had like a bazillion yard day. <laughs> so those kind of things kind of add up over time. I mean, he was unbelievable with Jared Goff too when Goff was uh, ready to let it rip. I mean, the thing they have now is if he is initially taken away, and he comes open late in the route. Matthew Stafford is so much more comfortable just, just ripping it in from you know weird arm angles or it not quite being the timing of the progression you would expect. He will just mm-hmm. let the thing go. Whereas maybe a more programmed quarterback who can't quite play on instincts might take the sack, might throw the ball away, might take a check down. So that that's where he's been able to elevate his game or at least get some more production is getting open late in the route when he's kind of being taken away through play design, but and Stafford then is just, is just willing to let it rip. Right. So let's talk Stafford and letting it rip because he's been brilliant in, in the postseason in particular. And again, much like his head coach had, had uh, had his detractors, certainly these errant throws that kept cropping up during the season and the tail end of the season, notably, he was under fire and, and seemingly unraveling might be overstating it, but he certainly wasn't uh, fluent and not really timing uh, things as you would want going into the postseason. He's turned it around and has been uh, maybe playing his best football of the season in in the playoffs. So let's bring those two points together. Firstly, the missteps, right? Why 
why do these happen for Stafford? And that, okay, I know there's not necessarily one single answer to that because there are uh, different reasons. But I guess what I'm asking is why does a player this experienced, this talented, this capable and in control of a game and his performance for much of it suddenly uh, do something that is head scratchingly, bafflingly out of out of character? Or is it or is it just part of his makeup that he's always going to have this element of his game? Yeah, he's always been this way. I mean, the the fair catch throw he threw in the NFC Championship game where it should have been intercepted into Quisky Tart, dropped it. I mean, yeah. that is a true Stafford bleep it ball. And he has been good for three to five of them a game his entire career. Mm. When Stafford has a real strange thing where deep in the route progression, he will panic. If it's not gone the way he quite expected it to go, there is a sheer sense of panic. And that's where you get the bleep it. Now he's so unbelievably talented at throwing down the field. Mm. It doesn't look like Drew Locke. You know, it looks like Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> it's like, oh, great. He can complete those. Yeah. And then he has players, Cooper Cup, Calvin Johnson, who have always, Kenny Galladay, have always brought that margin forever down because they're such good down the field threats. Right. I mean, I'm glad all... you mentioned Calvin Johnson, actually. I wondered, I wanted to ask you how much you think that is, you know, early on in your career when you're paired with somebody like that, where you could throwing up a, not even a 50-50 jump ball, but you could just air it out downfield that's 30-70 sometimes and, and Megatron will pull it down. How much that has become almost muscle memory and ingrained in his mindset that he just, and also, I guess, alongside that, that forcing the issue, it's interesting you use the word panic. And that is really fascinating to consider that because I'd often thought that, and maybe this is part of it too, but I've often thought that Stafford was a player like Favre that will, and, and you know, Favre had his rush to the head moments as well, right? But had so much self-belief that he could force it in that would, took those shots even when it absolutely wasn't on, right? That was, you know, Favre, when Favre would get, I, w- I would unravel, that was it. He just had this innate self-belief that I'll get it done. And that's what made him great. And that's what made him pull it off nine times out of 10, but it was the 10th time that it would flare up. So how much of that do you think is in Stafford as well? That the early era Stafford and the comfort blankets he had around him to, uh, to give him the confidence to try those risky balls, but also just how much he thinks I'm going to pull this off anyway, versus I don't know what I'm doing, bam. And it's, and it's a completely crazy play. It, it, there's certainly a muscle memory thing. And when he was in Detroit in the early years, they ran what's known as an isolation offense. Calvin Johnson on one side of the formation, everyone else clear out, you go to the other side and it becomes really simple. And they double in Calvin, if not one-on-one everywhere else. If they leave Calvin one-on-one, I throw the ball there. Nothing fancy, no intricate you know, routes crisscrossing to, to pop open versus certain coverage uh, shells. Purely simple one-on-one football. Who am I going to? And I'll read it pre-snap. So that has been ingrained in him now for a long time. And where he's always gone to trouble is late in the route progression, particularly people are moving on the back end and they change the shell from one to another. That's where, as I said, he kind of falls into this panic. And it's interesting because the Rams' success when Goff was there was always fueled by that was the entire design, right? It was deep option routes is like as if they created this thing. Bruce Arians has done it for the longest time of just get down there somewhere and find grass and mm-hmm. he'll see it and read it. There's no need for timing. Why are we timing something with 27 yards down the field? It's, that would, that math never works, right? So mm-hmm. just get open somewhere down there, find space, we'll throw you the ball. So them trying to marry those two styles together was always going to be a little bit strange and a little bit hectic. And they the, the Rams, to be fair to Sean McVay said, okay, we'll just do your stuff. All right. Let's ditch a lot of that stuff we're doing with Jared Goff. Work perfectly for him. If that's not how you like it, we will move more into this isolation territory, which is what they've done. Spread five men out, see it, read it, let the ball go. And he's just such a fascinating character because his arm strength 
gets him in trouble. If he had lesser of an arm, he would often be better, at least more consistent, right? And great I think point. because yeah. of how great his arm is, people think he's a gunslinger, like you mentioned. Oh, he's like Brett Favre. He's always been more of a Manning-esque manipulator of let me read it, let me change the play, let me play my isolation football. I'm going to pick my route pre-snap based off moving a receiver around and getting the right leverage, and I'll just go to it instantly. Then when it doesn't you know, take the way he expects it to, and he's got to start thinking on his feet that's when he actually gets in trouble which is so funny because some of his best plays are that improvisational stuff Mm. and so people think wow Stafford yeah it's kind of Favian look at all the comebacks he must be able to just make plays on the fly but he's always been his best when it's on schedule on script him allowed to dictate play from the line of scrimmage and he can kind of do some of the the Manning Brady play that style of football than he has been when he's necessarily been asked to say take five six seven shots down the field again that is fascinating. Uh, okay, let's go on to the Rams D because obviously this is going to be one of the the fundamental keys to the game. Can the Bengals do anything in the trenches to stop this Rams front? Uh, firstly, let's let's look at it from the Bengals' offensive line perspective uh, and part of that into into the Rams' pressure. So this offensive line, the probably the most overused stat of the week. It was always fun to see which stat gets trotted out the most during Super Bowl week. They've had more sacks than anybody else. A number of those inevitably are on Burrow. I don't know if, if you've looked at how many you would calculate on Burrow. It doesn't really matter in the sense that it's not always necessarily a marker of how porous an offensive line is, right? You have to look, scratch beneath the surface, but it's quite clear that, that it is one of the weaker lines in the league. Yet sometimes it holds up pretty well as it did against the Chiefs, I guess, certainly compared to the, the week before against the Titans. So I guess what I'm asking is this, just how weak do you think this Bengals offensive line is? Is it perhaps stronger than some of the surface level numbers suggest? No, I know. I think it's just as bad, uh, perhaps <laughs> okay. even worse. Even I think worse. The, the problem they have is that it's it's very particular to two spots. And it's then lined up next to each other. You've got the right guard and the right tackle. And that's just such a nightmare for being able to game plan. Well, do we slide everything? Do we keep someone in the backfield? Okay, so we're taking an eligible away. Oh, okay, we're going to have to do that. Well, what about what if they move Aaron Donald out there? It is just a complete nightmare to not have them maybe split up. You know, if no one wants to have two bad spots. That's the worst mm. thing you can have on an offensive line. But to have them next to each other, even if it was center right tackle, you would be able to just be able to help with your excellent right guard. So that is a real, real nightmare for them. I, what you said there is an excellent point, though, because the NFL is such a strange game. And in one game, sample sizes, we've seen, uh, particularly in the Super Bowl, position groups who are supposed to be bad somehow play well because it's a funny sport. Mm. So there is every chance they come out and do something and can play okay. The issue is how dominant the guys on the other side of the ball are who mm. never have a bad game. Aaron Donald, Von Miller have not had a bad game since they walked into the league. So it's, yeah, if they were playing a group where we thought that pass which was maybe just good and was, was mm. hot for the postseason, maybe you could talk yourself into it. But to game plan around a, a offensive line that bad, they've had at that right guard spot 48 pressures in total all season through the different guys they've ratcheted through there in one spot. Mm. So it's it's just an absolute nightmare. And they have no idea of knowing where is Aaron Donald going to be? Right. Where is Von Miller going to be? What if they put those two most likely over the top of our two terrible players? Uh-oh, we are in real trouble. <laughs> and this is it, right? They can come with this front. They come from anywhere. I mean, this is, you know, it's terrifying prospect. So how will the Bengals attempt to keep that neutralized? Is that down to getting the ground game going? Is it down to bringing tight end support or indeed running back support to help 
there. What will that do to their offensive game plan if they have to overcompensate to at least make that a fairish fight in, in the trenches? How do you think they'll try and uh, try and protect Burrow long enough for him to do something? It's a really tough one. I mean, the only team that's had success against them really over the last few years is the Niners have consistently gone in there and kind of handed it to them. And that's been with the run game. That's been with screens. That's been getting the ball out so fast that those guys can't get home in time. But that's a really talented line. And even yeah. then, you know, it's, it's them just kind of playing it to a draw is like, okay, we did our job. Can the quarterback push us over the top? That, that's kind of how it's been for them in those matchups. Um, so it's just, it's just so hard. I mean, that the best thing you can hope for, and the one thing the Niners have always done, is everything's been predicated out of the easiest block in football, the down block. You pushing with your leverage down on them, back into and away from where the ball's going to end up going. Traps, you know, the pin and pull, the, these different kind of style of plays. Maybe you could do that. But what you're, what you're asking for then, with the concern of it being that entire one side of the line is, well, the point of emphasis will still be on one of those guys to get out in space and to do something. Now, maybe those guys like pulling and moving out in space and they're better there than where they are at the moment in line. Um, but you're just asking that. Now you're inviting so many more moving pieces that have to go well, as opposed to just slamming the ball ahead, which is kind of what Joe Mixon and that style of uh, mm. run game they have. That's what they want to do is just slam the ball ahead and then get into spread sets to throw the ball to all those different receivers they have. So it would be a tough thing to say we have to completely compromise all the stuff we know we've done well all season to try and bail out these two fellas stood over here on the right. Or you go yeah. in and you say, let's just hope they have a good game, right? <laughs> That's yeah, kind right, of what right. the staff is doing for these two weeks. Look at each other like one plan for one, which would be the really ballsy move. One plan for those. Should we just do a couple of drives and see how they look? And I think that's how it's going to go. Do you, uh, Ollie, you're a West Wing fan. I am indeed. It's this like the episode when uh, Leo uh, fakes everybody ahead of the uh, vice presidential debate. <laughs> and the Bengals will be doing that all season long. And actually turns, <laughs> turns out that he's going to be fine after all. Maybe that's, maybe that's what they're doing. Um, it's on to, well, actually just on, on just one more on the, on the front and, uh, and Von Miller in particular. So not to simmer, I guess, simplistic comparison that it is, but the way that Miller has grown into his role within the Rams in the same way Beckham has offensively, is that again just logical acclimatization? Talk of him being a little bit banged up early on when he was there, and so wasn't really playing at anywhere close to to full tilt. Uh, what have you made of Von Miller's steady, uh, improved involvement in this front? Yeah, I feel like that's almost been a retrofitted thing because I think he's been fine the entire time and had all the mm. juice in the world. It's just the production hasn't quite followed, and often because the other guys around him are getting home so fast. You know, there's only so much to go around if you all get home in three seconds. You know, mm-hmm. Back when the final days of Denver, he was the only one getting home for a long stretch there. So right. you know, production inflates because you're the only guy around. Um, the most interesting thing for me with their front is when they started the season, it was constantly based out of five-man pressure to get one-on-one across the board. How do we get Aaron Donald one-on-one? And they were crushing people. I think they were second or third in the league in pressure rate per game. And they looked around, they said, this will not work in the postseason. In the postseason, it's still no matter how you try and draw things up, no matter how many good players you have, whoever gets four, whoever can get pressure with four, they go to the Super Bowl. You just look through the entire legacy of the league, even now with all the new stuff we do and Josh Allen running around and Patrick Mahomes running around, if you can get pressure with four, you go to the Super Bowl. And they said, we need to redefine our pass rush profile. We're getting tons of pressure. This is excellent, but we cannot rush with five in the postseason. We will get little by Aaron Rodgers. We'll get little by, if it's Trey Lance, Jimmy G, whoever's there at the end. If we send five, they will torture us. Matthew Stafford um, is a great example of this. 
on the other side of the ball. So they completely redefine it and they go from pressuring at 13 blitzes a game, which is around 32% of quarterback dropbacks, to bringing Von Miller in and dropping that all the way to 20%, just slicing out 10% of any kind of five-man pressure that they send in. So now it's a pure organic rush, get off the ball and go. And everyone terrified about will they align Donald and Miller together? And if they do, staring around saying we have absolutely no shot. So that to me is the big thing that Miller came in and the production was not there, as I said, because everyone else is really good, but also because they weren't sending five every time. So it was not one-on-one across the board the way it was when they were just crushing people in the early part of the season because they played the long game was, let's get used to pressuring with four. Let's figure out the back end where we've been pretty terrible, particularly at the, the second level and in the safety department. And slowly but surely, we are going to bank on the fact we have Aaron Donald and Von Miller and we'll start pressuring people to the same effect with four guys, which if you look through the pressure rate, the pressure rate is the exact same they still are third, fourth in the league over the totality of the season, but they changed how many guys are in coverage. That's really fascinating and, and crucial, I guess, when you're looking at their stacked uh, Bengals receiving core. So let's go there next. With regards to the J, well, Jamar Chase conundrum for the, for the Rams in terms of how they handle him, do you expect them to put Jalen Ramsey on him? Uh, not necessarily the entire game, because I guess they'll mix it up, but do you think he'll get a number of looks one-on-one against him? Is that a mistake if they do? How do you think they'll handle or try and deal with Jamar Chase? I don't know. I think that, that that's the biggest question on defense. You know, early in the season, they played Ramsey in, inside the field, slot box, defensive line about 50% of the time. Then when they traded for Von Miller, this was another component of the, we want to change our profile. They did. They thought if we play Jalen Ramsey inside and we're pressing with five, then we can kind of choke the middle of the field and we'll fo- force low percentage throws outside the numbers. And they were like, this is a great plan. Let's all go in, all rub their hands. I'm sure those high fives and they had croissants <laughs> and whatever they do in meetings. And then they got onto the field and said, oh, wait, we're playing NFL quarterbacks. They can hit throws outside the numbers. These guys love that stuff. They're like, right. great, cool. What a fun day. What a fun afternoon. No more of this rhythm and timing crap over the middle of the field. What a, what a one. It's like being back in high school. And they got roasted down the field. I mean, they gave up a ton of explosive plays. So when they got Miller, they said, okay, we'll move Ramsey back outside. He's now played 70% of his snaps outside. And we can just get bodies in the middle of the field. We'll do it that way. So we've got a great guy outside, bodies in the middle of the field. And now you go against this Bengals team where none of those guys ever move. They all line up in their very strict spots. Chase Higgins, um, the tight end, uh, Boyd, they, they are they perfectly slot up in those spots. They never move. So they really have a choice now. Do we do one-on-one Chase and Ramsey or do we commit two-on-one to Chase? So we just go with numbers on Chase. And now we've got this amazing player, the best corner in the league probably, and we can put him on one of those other guys. And I mm. do think that they're their best bet is to do that, is to say we go resources on their best player because the ball is going to have to come out fast. So we put resources. One guy misses, the second guy goes, gets him. And then we put Ramsey on wherever we want, tight end, wherever they're looking, which I think, honestly, is Tyler Boyd has, has had a pretty poor postseason. Yeah. But he has often been Burroughs' go-to, particularly third down guy this year. If it was me, I'd say put my best player on his go-to guy and then put my two free resources on their best guy. Yeah, that's so smart to, to look at it that way. And and as you said a moment ago, Ramsey can play play anywhere, right, pretty much. So that would make a huge amount of sense. On to Zach Taylor. Uh, we'll talk about players that are, and indeed coaches that have been maligned. And he's definitely had a lot of criticism in his uh, short tenure as head coach. And even now, even though they're in the Super Bowl, he doesn't seem to be getting much credit. This is all very much Joey Burrow's done it. And, Chase and Higgins and even, you know, Anna Rumor's getting 
probably a, more credit than it seems anyway, Zach Taylor's getting. Is that fair? Is that reasonable? Are we missing something? What have you made of Zach Taylor's performance as a head coach this season and specifically the development of this, of this Bengals offense? If we're talking about the credit that McVeigh and his team should, should be getting for at least in part for the um, it's significant improvement in Cooper cup. Yeah. Of course it's down to the man himself and it's down to Stafford. Sure. But there's a lot more to it than that. Same thing here with the, the Bengals offense, right? Zach Taylor should be getting more credit than he is. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, a lot of what <laughs> they run, what they run is what everyone else in the league runs. There's nothing there. that's like unique or wow. And I was having this conversation, it's funny you mentioned that, I was having this conversation with a high school coach two days ago and he said to me, he said, with all those players, why is there not two times a game where like the whole world blows up going, wow, they ran that? I mm. mean, they have three legitimate star wide receivers. They have an unbelievable tight end. Um, Drew Sample, the backup tight end, is a complete freak show. That is that Rico gathers, you know, basketball, Antonio Gates, all the classic ones. Mm. That's that guy. They've got Joe Mixon who can play anywhere on the field and then is an unbelievable running back in and of himself. They've got that quarterback. Why do they just line up and run the same stuff everyone runs every single game? I mean, there is becoming this kind of reassessing and retelling of their season and we're kind of forgetting that they went 10 and 7. It's not as if they, they ripped off 13 wins and it was a big shot. They are a team who got hot in the postseason, got a brilliant draw and had an unbelievable second half game plan against Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. Mm. And outside of that, it has been Burrow. And the playmakers, and usually people use that analysis and that's wrong and it lacks the nuance. And in this case, it's like people are searching for the nuance to explain the unexplainable. And mm. this time it's just that quarterback is so special, so good at moving in the pocket, so good at creating second chance throws and then hits them all. And then they've mm. got a guy who can carry the ball from anywhere on the field to a touchdown. And it, it's pretty much been that simple. I mean, they've been bad on offense in the postseason. Mm. They've won a game scoring, what is it, 19, 20 points. They haven't moved the ball that effectively. Consistently, they've been dreadful on first down. They just make plays on third down. And it's often Joe Burrow escaping the grasp of, of Frank Clark and, and these guys, you know, twice on one play and Chris Jones twice on one play. I mean, those are just things that the coach has absolutely nothing to do with. No control. I'll just go back to the good point you make on, or interesting point on first down and their game plan for first down and, and certainly against the the Chiefs. And I haven't looked in detail uh, at, the, at the other postseason games in terms of the numbers, but leading with the run on first down is something that is a big part of this offense, which is interesting, isn't it? Because it isn't, if we're talking about what's conventional, right? And looking at, uh, to your point, what other offices are doing and how other teams are doing it. And if the Bengals are a little bit, uh, uh, unremarkable in that respect, then that's a that's a slight variation from the book right now, isn't it? That a lot of people. Oh, I mean, Carlson was saying on the show recently uh, how some of the broadcast crews were talking about the Bengals doing that, and the comms were saying, "Well, you know, it's a great opportunity to pass on first down. It's a great opportunity to do that." And and the Bengals deviate from that is a little bit left field, I guess. But you're saying it, it not altogether successful when they're doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I get they are a giant rah-rah franchise. They love all the rah-rah stuff. They love the, the way we're talking about how they're winning games because of Joe Burrow's leadership and intangibles. And they are a big time, establish the run. We're going to do duo. We're going to find two double teams. And then we're going to search the second level. They love that stuff. That's why they wanted to go into that. We're going to go into Arrowhead and we're going to set the tone, right? And mm. it's like, okay, you picked up three yards on 12 plays. Excellent. Okay, this is going really swimmingly. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean... I do think, though, is 
you know, against that front, you're going to have to hit them. You know, mm. it's, it goes back to that Brandon Staley thing from early in the year that you can go through all the analytics and the numbers and it tells you you should throw the ball on first down and first down is the most important down. The most best way to maximize that efficiency is to throw the ball down the field. All that is well and understood, but it is still a physical game. There's a physical component to the game. And when you have two sinkholes standing next to each other, they are better going forwards than they are going backwards. Why would you as a staff say, my plan is to invite Von Miller and Aaron Donald to the party for 50 <laughs> dropbacks? It makes no sense. And maybe you do only, you know, maybe you do run, just run flat into a wall, three drives in a row, smashing the ball forward on first down. But at least you're getting off the ball. At least you're getting them thinking, you're getting them moving backwards or sideways. And then when if you do bring in a bootleg or a play action or try to take a shot down the field, maybe they, the linebackers, are in some kind of, uh, of uh, you know, second-guessing themselves. I think this mm. notion that they come out five wide and they try and dink their dunk away from the pass rush, that just doesn't make a whole bunch of sense to me. I think they do have to kind of run a similar plan to the Chiefs, as, as frustrating as it was and maybe as unimaginative as it is, you don't really have a great deal of options when you're playing a Hall of Famer in the middle of the field and your right card is terrible. You know, mm. the, 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 you're kind of running out of options there. Early, okay. So uh, we'll wrap with the Bengals D uh, and underrated call that it is, I think. And we, we touched on it, the, the game plan, and you, you described it uh, perfectly. The core reason for uh, the win against the Chiefs was a brilliant second half performance. And in particular, of course, defensively, just completely shutting down a Chiefs offense that looked in uh, total slipstream in, in the first half. All this talk of dropping eight and uh, that clearly worked. Why did it work though? Why did that baffle the Chiefs so much? Well, you can go in. There's the, the you know that's there's nine billion hours of football clinics all over the internet explaining why drop eight can be so effective. I think the the most underrated part of it, and I'm sure by this point. People listen to your program. I've heard 9,000 things about this uh, drop eight coverage. One of the big things is the way offensive playbooks and play designs are designed to attack the defense is with the understanding there'll be seven guys back there. And if there's not, then there'll be fewer because they're blitzing and that's great because we'll just get rid of the ball, right? They build in the hot routes for if there is a blitz. So they are designed. And if you go and look at how they tier their concepts, it's to hit the different levels of the defense. If there were seven guys in there, depending on how they distribute the, the, those seven guys could be four deep, three under three deep, four under. That's kind of what you're working with. When you add an eight guy to the equation, well, suddenly our, our play designs weren't built to attack eight guys. Now they can add layers in all the way down the ladder, right? Is they can just put guys at different depths, different landmarks. They've got more guys to play with. The throwing windows are different because now there's five guys underneath. That's not supposed to happen. <laughs> One of these routes is supposed to pop because we've designed it in a way where at some point in the route concept, someone is open against seven guys in coverage. But I get it. But Lou and Aruma didn't, didn't devise dropping eight men in the second half against the Chiefs, right? This is not something new. So why isn't there a counter for that? Well, there, there's certainly count. I mean, the counter is to, if they're putting eight guys back, well, we have five guys in the line of scrimmage. Let's run the ball. I'm going to blow them off the ball. And we move the ball six, seven yards to clip, which the Chiefs did do. When they ran the ball, they moved it effortlessly yeah. in that second half. They just moved away from it. The thing that was different about what Anaruma did is it dropping eight is a situational coverage. You know, that is third and backed up, third and for, second and forever, um, end of half type stuff. It's a mm -hmm. situational defense. It's not something you run on a down-to-down -down basis and they run it nonstop in that mm. second half um, and did it in creative ways that is hard to describe in a podcast where they're running a combination coverage where it's man to one side of the field and zone to the other. So as you read it as the quarterback and the plays flow from one side to the other, you go man, 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 court should be man on the backside. You turn around, suddenly it's not man what coverage the anymore. Yeah. And so now you see Mahomes 
pull the ball down, look, thing. All right, I'm going to yeah. take off. And then they just made great plays. This is the thing I always say. It's like the other team has good players too, particularly when you're in the final four of the NFL postseason. I think people think, oh, Tyreek Hill will just run away from everyone. Mm. The Bengals have really fast, really good players on defense as well, particularly in the secondary. So uh, you're right. It, it was not a brand new thing. It, it's surprising to me. It flummoxed them so much, you would think, because they faced it a decent amount this year, mm. at the end of half, that they would have you know, a call sheet ready to go for such a situation. I think it's just the sheer volume that mm. it was run out. That's unusual at the NFL level. And I just think that it kind of, for, for I mean, basically the whole half just completely freaked Patrick Mahomes out individually. I don't think there's mm. anything wrong with kind of the architecture of the offense. I just think the individual guy got a bit weirded out by it. Yeah, uh, really, really uh, interesting how you've broken that down. And I want to wrap on, uh, well, you've touched on some of the unsung, unheralded players in this Bengals D. Uh, you know, we hear, of course, uh, the headline acts, Hendrickson most notably, but just talk through some of the key players to this defense and by association, some of the key matchups you think uh, with the Rams offense uh, and the Bengals D on Sunday. So you talked about the secondary in particular. Just run through who's impressed you from the Bengals D this year. Well, Von Bell is the guy. Um, Jesse Bates is the free safety. He gets a ton of the headlines because he's always around the ball, which is obviously important. Von Bell is the guy they move basically everywhere. They don't trust their linebackers, so he'll play in the box a bunch. What is interesting is in the postseason, they've moved him. So he used to be the box safety. He'll play down there. They play him on the line of scrimmage. They'll play with three safeties at some point. Now they are playing exclusively with Bates and Bell and playing Bell way off the ball which is completely against type. He is essentially a linebacker who they, they try and pretend and give him a safety number. That, that's how most of his career has gone. Now they're playing him purely as a safety and that has freaked teams out because I think they've gone into games trying to game plan around, right? Can we get someone loose on Bell, a tight end, a receiver in the slot and maybe isolate and attack that guy one-on-one -on -one in the middle of the field? And now he's way off the ball and they're trying to have to, to, to re-game plan around where exactly is Von Bell? because um, he's still a danger in the run game no matter where you align him on the field. So Von Bell is the key. Um, I'm fascinated. You know, the Rams play so much empty. And I was I literally today I said, all right, I'm going to go through and watch all these Bengals snaps from about the last eight games against empty. How do they kind of play this thing? Because there's mm. three different ways you can play it. You can go cold, warm, hot are the three things. Cold is four-man organic pass rush. Warm is... Five on five, we put five guys across the board, force them to play man-to-man -man pass blocking, and you just pick the best matchup and we win. Or you go hot, which is blitzing. And so I was going through them, and one, Bengals barely have played anyone who's even played a snap of empty for months. Um, secondly, when they do do it, they do the cold, they just rush four guys. Three, they have been roasted, and I mean torn apart. I'm talking 20, 30-yard splash plays consistently every third, fourth snap. They're just getting ripped apart when teams go into empty because you're able to get at their linebackers. You're able to get Bell up on the line of scrimmage where he does not want to be in coverage rather than being off me able to see it and drive, which is where it's at his best. So if the Rams come out and play their traditional offense, the Bengals have not seen it very much. So mm. I don't know how they would adjust to it. They must have worked on that in this fortnight. And then they've been terrible at it. Truly terrible. So it's that is the most fascinating piece is when they go into their empty sets, how do they try and pick and choose those matchups? Do they just get extra DBs in the field? Do they try and move Bell around? They don't want to take him off the field. That is a real, real problem point for them. Really interesting. Oh, as always is, catching up with you and breaking this down for us. Massively appreciate it. I don't want to put you... Well, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, but you don't have to answer is what I'm saying. Uh, oh, no. Because we are re recording this a few days later. Based on the last 40, 45 minutes, everything's telling me that you're leaning Rams, right? To, to, to win this. Is, would I be right? 
It's that 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 tweet that went viral the other day. Is it sums it up perfectly. We just did all this analysis, and it's almost inconsequential because it's like the the brain and everything about watching the game of football tells you, yeah, the Rams should roll this thing. But then there's Joe Burrow, yeah, <laughs> and the guy is just built differently. Yeah, sure. Um, and you never want to be caught at the wrong end of the early stage of Joe Montana's career picking against Joe Montana. Do you know what I mean? You don't right. wanna, you don't right. want to be pointing that situation. You want to be that guy. So I, I'm all for the fairy tale storyline. I do feel like there's also a brilliant thing if you pick the Bengals and they win, you get to. Mm really run your own parade if you pick the if you pick Big them lose, no one will remember exactly um, that so I, i'm i am all for two silly matthew stafford throws <laughs> and a really tight contested how did they do that walk mm. off ever mcpherson clutch of oh it's gotta be it's in the stars it's mcpherson oh i well look absolutely right i mean if we are sitting here on monday and that exactly that has played out none of us would be surprised right and that's what we love about this game and this matchup in particular as you said right at the top of the show a really intriguing matchup and you have made it uh, that little bit more interesting for us by illuminating some of the key battles and i always appreciate your insight uh the Substack is read optional get involved with that uh just give that a plug where should our listeners head to get more of your stylings of profilings yep uh readoptional.substack.com that's where you can go and read everything listen to podcasts all the good stuff brilliant stuff get involved with that gang uh, is well worth it uh ollie enjoy the game great to catch up with you and we'll chat to you in the off season thanks man speak to you later take care man yeah, the read optional Substack. Get involved with that. He is superb. I am sure you all agree, as is the fantastic guy, Mike Carlson. He's in the vault. Uh, he's in the vault. That sounds... He's Mike's in the vault. Mike's pod is in the vault. So is our college days. Uh, Super Bowl previews coming thick and fast. We're going to have an edge rush. Ollie is on the ground. Big O is on the ground in... Well, he was in Vegas. I'm amazed he made it out of Vegas and got to LA, but he has done. So he is going to be joining me for an Edra special, which will, of course, feature our big picks for the game. Propos, prop bets, all the good stuff. And he's going to be dropping a special from LA out there. So it is all coming. Remember, I will be in the anchors chair for the BBC broadcast on Sunday. So make sure you are tuning into us. Do not go with any alternatives. Keep it with us on that one. I'm sure you will. And we'll be back dropping a pod very soon. We'll see you soon, gang. Bye for now. Sports Social Podcast Network.